Welcome to Radio Rollback Podcast, celebrating the greatest days of music radio. Now here's your host, Jeff Martin. Hello and welcome to the Radio Rollback Podcast, uh, episode 33 now, yeah, into well into the 30s. It's a very special edition as well, uh, this one, because uh, the ones I love is when we get to uh, speak to some of the people who were right there uh, making all that wonderful radio back in the 60s, uh, the 70s and the 80s. Uh, the person in question this time certainly was in the 70s and uh, the 80s. I speak of Nick Richards, who was uh, right there at uh, the time when the Mi Amigo sank on that night in March of 1980 and also involved in the Irish pirate scene as well. So lots of interesting stuff to come with Nick Richards and uh, coming up very, very shortly. Thanks to everyone who was, uh, who's got in touch about episode 32. Thanks for your kind comments. Always appreciated. And as I always say, please, please, please uh, spread the word if you know anyone who's... Uh, Interested in the great, great, great days of uh, music radio in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, please spread the word. Uh, and even if they're not, still persuade them, because when they listen to this, um, it might bring them a whole new uh, thing into their lives that they want to find out uh, more of. So uh, uh, thank you for that. So before we do uh, chat to Nick as well, one of the other things I've been um, doing since episode 32, I, I had a um, had some leave to take from... Uh, uh, the day job kind of thing and uh, we were cl- we were clearing out the spare room and I came across uh, a lot of the uh, stuff that I've collected over the years about uh, radio offshore radio particularly but not exclusively and uh, I-, I found my old scrapbook which I uh, kept from about 1973 till 1976 and even beyond that and I've still got lots and lots of stuff that uh, I, I cut out ready but but never actually put in uh, in the scrapbook so there's um there's a a couple of little uh, uh, things I found in the classic uh, ad uh, pages of uh, the record mirror and I thought they were both a little bit intriguing so I put one on the Radio City um, 299 Meters Tower of Power Facebook group and it read, this is the the ad, um, Radio City 4 kilowatt transmitter dismantled most spots available numerous other spares uh, list uh, uh, if you send an S. AE. Do you remember SAE? Stamped addressed envelopes, for those who don't remember them. And uh, we used to uh, rely so much on them back in the day. Yes, we really did. And the address was 5 Cortlands, Hearn Bay in Kent. And we've had a few comments about that technically and things, which, um, yeah, to be to be uh, absolutely honest, um, not my thing technically. I have think uh, about things technical. But the other one was even a bit more in, intriguing um, this was uh, this is again in the classified ads of uh, the record mirror. It says Tony Allen or Dave Owen of Radio Caroline. Please contact John Fulcher at one five eight Lee Sinton Road, Malvern, Link, Worcestershire. And um, so that, I thought that was intriguing. I wonder what that was all about. So I wondered if anybody knew. So I've had a. Um, I've had a couple of replies on Facebook and one of them is saying that uh, uh, there is a, a John Fulcher uh, on Facebook in uh, Worcestershire. Uh, so 
maybe worth giving him a contact, see what if, if it's the same one. I might just do that between now and the next uh, podcast. And if I get anything interesting, I will certainly let you know. But now let's move on to our main feature, which is my wonderful chat I had with uh, Nick Richards, uh, formerly of Radio Caroline. He's still broadcasting today uh, in Cork. I think it's C103. Uh, I've been listening to his show and he still sounded uh, amazing. So we had a chat about all things Radio Caroline, of course, about the Irish uh, scene and uh, what he's up to now. Fabulous career. We'll tell you all about it in the uh, the interview. We started off by actually chatting before I sort of started recording uh, about how young people are fascinated uh, by the offshore stations all these years on. And I think it's uh, pretty much down to, you know, why people would go out uh, to spend their time on ships and rusty forts and things like that just to play music. It's a million miles from uh, what it is today. Absolutely, yeah. And I know what you mean about younger people like have an interest in, in the story of the ships and the forts. We we have um we have a promotional team that go out to events and stuff and they're all you know, they're male, female and they're I don't know, probably early twenties, um, age wise. And a lot of them went to see that movie which a lot of people slag off, the uh, the boat that rocked. Um rocked, yeah. I think a lot of people that were involved in ships and forts and stuff, whether it was 60s, 70s, 80s or whatever, they were very disappointed in the movie. But this younger generation, it was like it blew them away. Did that really happen? And then one or two of them found out that I'd done some of that and they just can't get enough stories and what was it really like and stuff. They, you know, it's it's really has that movie – it may have disappointed some, but it opened up a generation of people that now have an interest, knew nothing about, you know, a ship, however far out, with a big mast and was broadcasting music. Uh, they love it. Yeah, I, yeah, I find exactly that as well. And, and you know, in fact, when you start to talk to them about it, that always comes up. They always go, oh, you mean the boat that rocked? And, mm. yeah, we know, we know it. You know, it was drama at the end of the day, wasn't it? That's but, um, all it was, yeah. You know, you're up. Yeah, you're absolutely right, though. I think that has, you know, got people looking and revisiting. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I've got young people uh, in the twenties that certainly I know have, have messaged me who, who listen to the podcast and say it's just in, incredible because you know to think, you know, what guys like yourself went through to to play music and uh, I, I can't remember who it was. I was at an event once. I can't remember who it was, but somebody said to me. Um, you know, they got the the feeling that uh, from the listeners back in the sixties that, you know, if and and this the quote was something like, you know, if we're prepared to go through all that to play the latest Hollies record, then the latest Hollies record must be worth listening to. <laughs> it was something along those lines, and yeah. I kind of get where they were coming from. It is it's madness when you think, you know, to look back on those days, you know, and. And there were risks involved, not just, you know, legally, but the risks of sitting on a rusty ship so far out at sea. That was a health and, you know, life risk, really. But I don't think it was ever really, you know, at the forefront of your mind. It was like, we have this radio station, we've got to pump out music, that's what we do. Just get on 
and do it. You knew, you knew there was all kinds of risks, like more legally, I think, and getting out there and tender journeys and stuff like that. But like for the Mi Amigo anyway, I yeah. I think everybody just felt very safe. You, you, you just never thought that ship is one day going to sink. But of course it had to, really. It's like an old car. It won't just go on forever. It'll yeah. break, stop, and you have to replace it. Yeah, because uh, when you uh, when you actually went out, I mean, that all, all those risks you talk about were actually there. I mean, legally, uh, weren't they? I mean, people were taking, the authorities were taking, uh, and and able to take more interest in Caroline than than back in the sixties. And of course, like you say, the ship was getting on. And uh, and what 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 year was it you went out? Was it about seventy six or something like? No, um, seventy nine. Um, really, you know, I was very small part in the, you know, the story, but, um, I'd, I'd fired a couple of tapes in the past prior to 79, but, um, once you're in sort of the organization, you realize that, um, you know, someone who just pops out of nowhere, however good or bad their tape is, you know, you know nothing about their background and how do you know to trust them? So it's once you've almost uh, got into that inner circle and then people go, ah, right, yeah, we know him and he's okay and we trust him. Then, you know, you get out to the ship or become involved in some shape or form. But it was, it was, you know, that whole spy thing of code numbers and code names and where you were meant to be and stuff like that. So, uh, yes, 79. Was it the beginning of 79? I, I first went out there when it was off the air. It had run out of fuel. Radio Mi Amigo had pulled out because they were getting their own ship. So it was just uh, the offer of work was to go out there and try and make the ship dry and that it could go on the air again at some point because it had nearly sunk. Um, close to a year before that, and the crew had been taken off. So the, there was, I think it was just Tony Allen was the only person that stayed the first time I went out there. And there was myself and Johnny Lewis and one other person, and our one objective was dry out the cabins, paint them, paint the side of the ship, get rid of as much rust as we could, and nothing more than that. There was never even the suggestion of getting on air um, I, I kind of did get, you know, Ronan's philosophy of that whole, you know, it's a little bit of freedom and no one's controlling it and it's doing no harm. And I, I'd quite like that. So I went out there with the, uh, idea. I was just, I was just like, they, I think they called them a deck hand, just odd jobs, um, where you could be useful and they needed people and there was no promise of even money, but I thought <laughs> this is a good experience, you know, to, to go and work on this world-famous radio station, uh, even if it was for one trip. Yeah. So I jumped at it, really. Yeah, and what, what was what was the ship like when, I mean, you said, yeah, I remember it, it nearly sank, and, and, yeah, it nearly came to grief, didn't it? Because I think, I don't know, with the, I think it was, was it Chicago or somebody literally made his way out to the boat and claimed it before somebody else did? Yeah, I think so. What was it like? What was your first impressions when you saw it? Because, I mean, back in the day, I mean, even myself, you know, I, um, there wasn't that many current pictures around of the, the ship, not like, you know, there would be now with obviously social media and stuff. So what, what, what was your first impressions when you just saw it, Nick? First impression was really that it, uh, how small it was and compact. 
you know, you see pictures over the years and it's like anything until you actually see it through your own eyes. You don't get the whole perspective. But I, it was, yeah, surprising how compact it was and also how stable. We, we'd gone out there in a little motor launch. Three of us climbed on board the Mi Amigo and it was, as soon as you hit the deck, it was like you were on land. It felt so solid. And the little cabin cruiser we came out on was bouncing all over the place. Uh, we transferred food and some fuel and bits and pieces. And then that little boat went off on the horizon. And I do remember thinking, uh, it's still close enough. If I shout, they might hear me and I could theoretically go back uh, into land. But I thought, no, this is an adventure and I've got to see it through however long it lasts. And they showed me roughly, you know, where all the cabins were, where the transmitters were, generators, all that sort of stuff. Um, and it was very well designed for what it was. And everything just fitted in the right place and it was comfortable. The downstairs cabins were still damp. So the four of us that were on board, we all stayed in cabins which were under the bridge at the back of the ship. And it was quite nice mostly mild, dry weather. So those cabins did dry out quite quickly. We were able to paint them. And then it was just odd jobs around the ship, anything you could see that needed fixing, painting. To give you a realistic answer, um, it wasn't in great shape. I mean, it was probably at sea for however many, since the 60s, I would imagine, or the 70s, but it hadn't had any major work done on it, like, you know, new plates put underneath the hull and stuff like that, either because there was no money around to do that or, you know, nobody nobody could afford to dry dock the ship. There just wasn't the money there. So it wasn't in great shape. But, you know, the paint job we did kind of hid a lot of the rust and the not-so-good-looking bits of it, to be honest, Jeff. Yeah, so so how obviously you eventually um, got it back on air. Was you actually there when uh, it actually came back on air, Nick? Uh, yeah, i tell you what happened. It was one Saturday afternoon, and it was around Easter time, and it was a lovely sunny day. The sea was completely calm, and I remember uh, uh, Tony Allen did most of the cooking because he was the best at it at the time. And he was cooking something, and we, it was early evening, and we had the TV on because we only had a small generator for a few hours in the evening uh, of electricity. And there was a John Wayne movie on, and it had just started, and we're all in the mess room watching it, and we heard this boom on the side of the ship. So we all got up, looked out, and there was this barge which someone had found in a river in Kent, I think it had been abandoned, and the Caroline organiz organization found it, and they commandeered it, and they loaded it up with fuel. Uh, there were Dutch DJs, there was Chicago, it was everything you needed to put the station back on the air, and that arrived, I say, early Saturday evening, and it became fairly obvious that all the Dutch DJs and the English DJs that came, there was no room for me and a couple of others. So that was our time. We went back to the UK on this barge. And at the time, I, I thought, well, you know, I knew it wasn't going to last forever, but I had a great adventure. And I thought, well, you know, nothing more is going to happen. That's me. Now the professionals are taking over. And uh, I had a great time and enjoyed it. And they worked all through the night uh, <laughs> 
carting jingles and doing all sorts of stuff so that uh, I think it was around lunchtime the following day on the Sunday, would have been Easter Sunday, which, of course, Caroline anniversary. And uh, Tony Allen came back on the air and announced the station was back. And I think it was a fool if you think it's over. But Chris Rea was the, um, the song that he played. And that was Caroline back. Two minutes past 11 hour time, two minutes past 12, cloggy time. This is us. We're back. And I thought we'd start off with this one. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, I, yes, I think I've got that somewhere in my um, recordings. It was, uh, yeah, it's quite quite a surprise. And uh, so so how did you, um, so obviously you, you got back and that, so how did you return? Uh, did you just keep in touch and, and say, look, I'd like to go back out if, if I can? Or did they contact you sort of thing? I tell you what happened. I went along to a Caroline Roadshow because at that time I'd met quite a few of the people on board and I thought there was, I was living in Rayleigh in Essex at the time and there was a Caroline Roadshow in Chelmsford, which isn't far away. So I went along and didn't know if anybody from the ship would be there or not. And yeah. I'm going into the main hall area where the roadshow was on and these doors burst open. And there's Tony Allen, and, and he says, darling, and came up to me and kissed me on the lips in front of all these hairy bikers. And I thought, right, okay, where do we go from this? Tony says, when are you coming back? And I said, well, I, no one asked me to. He said, leave it with me. And he spoke to whoever. Within a few days, I got a phone call saying, um, are you free to go back out? And I said, yeah, of course. And that was it going back out for a second time, which I thought is even better. But again, just on the basis of being a deckhand, just doing odd jobs where I could. So I've Tony Allen to thank for, you know, going back a second time. By that time, station was on the air, Radio Caroline Dutch service during the day, and most of the night it was the English service. So the station was back and uh, somehow they'd found a little niche for me to get back out there. And uh, I was doing a few jobs and stuff. Again, you know, no money, but it wasn't always for the money you did it. There must have been a really different feeling uh, around the ship when you got back that, that second time where the actual having the functioning radio station going. Totally different. There's a real energy and a real buzz because you had the Dutch doing a lot of their shows, if not all of them, live. And when they're not uh, doing shows, they were cooking like um, a lot of the time, apart from in the evening, you looked after yourself, whether it was, I don't know, rashes and eggs and toast and whatever you could make, you fed yourself during the course of the day. So the Dutch were always buzzing around doing that. And then the English uh, guys would get up later in the day. There was just so much more going on on the ship. And uh, you'd have the generator going all day and all night as well. Yeah, like being alive kind of thing. Yeah, that kind that, of thing, that, yeah. That's really... And uh, Tony Allen was some broadcaster, wasn't he? He really was. So how did you get your opportunity to go on air? Did they ask you if you want to have a go? Or One Saturday afternoon, John Lewis came up to me and he said, do you, uh, do you fancy going on air? And I went, yeah, how, how could that happen? And he said, I'm going to make out I'm seasick. But if you'd seen the sea on that day, there's no way anybody could be seasick. <laughs> so he said, I'm, if anyone asks, I've been seasick and you've just jumped in. So I did a show, it, maybe it was two hours, maybe three. I think it started something like five o'clock in the afternoon. 
I just went downstairs into a record library, pulled out a load of albums. There was a format there, but it was very easy to follow and you could interpret it however you wanted. I did that show. All I remember from it is one song, ELO, Last Train to London. And I don't think there was any significance of picking that song. It's just one song that stayed in my mind. But the rest of it, I don't really remember much at all. I, I just thought, keep it short try and get to the top of the hour at the right point. And then on the, we used to have a, a contact, uh, like a CB, uh, in the evening for any messages for the ship, apart from the coded message on, on air. And they did ask on land, you know, who was that fellow that was on this afternoon? And whoever was operating the uh, CB on the ship said, oh, it's that fellow who's the, like the old job man, he's the deckhand. And they went, oh, okay, ju- but just let us know if you're going to put someone new on air. Hello, you are listening to Nick Richard on Radio Caroline. Music Radio! Radio Caroline! That's Lindisfarne from their album Back and Forth and a song called Run for Home. And before that, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers from their current number eight album in the Caroline Countdown called Damn the Torpedoes and a song called You Tell Me. It's 16 and a half minutes past 12. And uh, I probably did a few more weeks out there, just the one show. And then I went off on shore leave and I thought, surely that's it. Two trips, two times working on Radio Caroline. That's got to be it. So I started looking for another job. But before I found anything, there's this other phone call. Could you go back out to the ship? And they said, this time you're doing shows all the time. And most of that third trip was midnight to 3 a.m., Although that would sound sort of strange today, but actually that those late night time slots were a really great time to be on air. I mean, I, I remember that was mainly the time when I probably not till three a.m. But certainly, I was always listening around about that midnight till till one uh, slot. And I think they had um, Caroline had a really big audience across Europe at that time. So you must have um, only enjoyed it, but must have had some good reaction as well from that. You're right. It, it, it had a huge listenership the later it went across Europe, like Germany and Holland and Belgium and wherever. Um, it really was a nighttime rock service or that nobody else was doing. And you did feel like there was a lot of people listening that time of the night. Of course, Fridays and Saturdays, um, I was always conscious if I was doing that midnight two or three show, uh, you had the Caroline Road shows all spilling out. They went on until midnight and... You just imagined, you know, I don't know, five, six hundred people coming out of a roadshow and you, you kind of knew first thing when they got in the car was turn on Caroline and you'd play them songs, you know, anybody that was at roadshow tonight in wherever, Croydon or whatever. And, and you felt there was that kind of connection because it, it's like you said earlier, that it's not like social media today. Uh, People can WhatsApp you, text you, message you on your website or whatever way they want to do it. There was none of that then. You you just kind of went on instinct. But uh, there was never any doubt that Caroline's nighttime album service, there was never any doubt about that being a success. I think it really did work. Where else at the time would you have heard those uh, Steely Dan tracks and Eagle album tracks and Neil Young and stuff. I know it sounds a bit dated musically now, but at the time, that's what you know. Record shops were selling tons of. There's that famous survey that uh, Ronan, 
apparently carried out when he went into record stores and said, what do you sell most of, singles or albums? And they all said albums. So, it, you know, it made sense to do a format based on uh, albums. Whoa, whoa. Average white band from Show Your Hand. And back in 67, play that especially for Stevie Gordon. Because you refer to myself. And also Tom Hardy as Young Upstarts the other night. However, he did admit that he was an old hippie in the end, so... Maybe that's okay. Yeah, and, and that that is what the beauty of um, of radio is. I mean, the way it is now, it's, everybody's trying to do the same thing as they, they were back then, really. But to actually have that different format and being proud of it, and uh, it, it did really, really kind of work. And it was almost like the freedom to play albums, uh, whereas everybody else was playing singles at the, the back in back in the day. So uh, I suppose after that third time out there, then you started to really feel a part of the organisation or and certainly a part of the team and not the new boy uh, anymore. And you were you obviously planned to go back when she, when she came off. There wasn't a lot of money around for us when we came off the ship. So, you know, if you could get some work, because uh, before going out to the Mimigo, I worked for a security company in Ilford, East London, and it was in their cash in transit vans. So if you think sitting, all right, yeah, if you think sitting on a rusty ship twenty miles out at sea is dangerous, um, walking around London with a bag of money and just a crash helmet—that's got a certain amount of danger attached to it as well. So, but I did, out of interest, contact the security company when I came off, and they went, "Well, if you're free, we can give you some work." So I had a little bit of income through that security company to keep me keep me going until I went out to the ship again. And there was always the option if, if you know, you'd run out of money and you were on shore leave, you could always go back to the ship where everything was free. So uh, um, obviously you were uh, on the, the ship when on that awful night when uh, it, she obviously sank. And what, was there any sort of pre-warnings of that and... Was there any concern really on? I know you, you've said that it was an old ship and it was going to eventually, but was there any sort of concerns growing up to that time when it actually did, or were you all still fairly confident and felt really safe? Yeah, I think we did feel very safe. It's madness, isn't it, really? When you, you look at some of the photographs of towards the end when it was still afloat, one thing stays with me. And if you've ever read Albert Hood's book, Uh, there's a piece towards the end where Albert decided he didn't want to take people out to the ship anymore. He'd take, you know, water, food, whatever, uh, newspapers, and he'd take people off, but he didn't want on his conscience the idea that he may have put someone on the ship and then the ship could have sank. And I totally get that now. And reading it in his book, it sort of brings it home a bit more. And I I think maybe he had said to us on board, I'm not bringing anyone else out here. And that did kind of make you think a little bit about the condition of the ship. Okay, there's only four of us on board the ship and we've got to stop this ship going, which is not easy. Uh, There is a spare anchor. It took forever to get it over the side, but uh, ship's wheel wasn't there. The, The compass had probably been taken ship's engine hadn't worked for years so how are you gonna control this ship in open sea and the best we could do is put the spare anchor over the side and then let the coast guard know that we've moved position and they could plot exactly where we were and also 
in the same breath, they told us that low tide, there would be very little water underneath the ship. So that could be, you know, uh, an awkward time. As it turned out, it, it, that that's exactly what happened. Um, the chain that had broken, there was a length of it, we think, underneath the ship. And as the ship was on that sandbank, you had the sandbank, then the chain under the hull, then the hull. And as the ship was moving, as the tide was changing, it was like the ship was pressing on the chain, pressing on the sandbank, and a lot of the old holes that had been fixed suddenly started opening. And uh, that was really, I suppose, the beginning of the end, though we didn't realise at the time. Uh, there was hours yet when we were still either partly afloat or stuck on that sandbank. Levenish, I think, was the, the last time we went on air and did the weather and gave out the code numbers. I, I don't think I ever envisaged leaving the ship. It's, you know, you, you've, you probably know better than me, Jeff, you know, the history of the ship, the scrapes it's been in, the near sinkings, yeah. the drama, you know. And at that time, I thought, well, as long as we keep pumping out the water, you know, the, the sea will calm down eventually and we'll fix any new holes and a tug will be out from somewhere, tow us back into the Deep Channel and here we go again. Yeah, and, and I think, I don't know whether you felt that, uh, on the ship, but there is kind of a, a magic about the Caroline ships, and they're, they're, they're almost like there's a guardian angel. I mean, obviously, that they, they, they didn't work that night, but you know, Eve, you know, when you think about things with the Ross, I mean, you go on the Goodwin Sands and you're done, but not the Ross Revenge, it, it came off. And, and, and I think, you know, there is that, it's strange, really, and it, but it is, it is that kind of magic, isn't there, about, about the whole uh, thing. and and I sort of kind of get, you know, uh, it, it was like in the final broadcast, uh, um, you know, I think we'll be back anyway. Uh, and it was it was that, wasn't it? I remember it was after 11-ish and I looked in the engine room, which is towards the back of the ship, and I looked in there all evening, all day it had been dry, and suddenly the water was coming into the bilges and close to the plates where we used to walk around in the engine room. And I thought, this is this has suddenly changed. So I let the guys know on the bridge. And, you know, we had every pump on board pumping. And it, it, there was more coming in we could pump out. And that, you know, you don't need to be a mathematician yeah. to work that one out. So, um, you know, senior guys were Stevie Gordon and Tom Anderson. And they'd obviously agreed. And it, it was the right time. Close the radio station down and let's go on to the lifeboat. Maybe the lifeboat might just stand by a while and see how, you know, the sea is. I walked into the main section of the ship. Radio Caroline broadcasting on 319 metres, 963 kilohertz. Well, we're sorry to tell you that due to the severe con weather conditions and also to the fact that we're shoving quite a lot of water, we're closing down and the crew are at this stage leaving the ship uh, Obviously, we hope to be back with you as soon as possible. But uh, we'd just like to assure you all on land that there's nothing to worry about. We're all quite safe. Just for the moment, we'd like to say goodbye. Tom? Yeah, it's um, not a very good occasion, really. I have to hurry this because the lifeboat is standing by. We're not leaving and disappearing. We're going onto the lifeboat, hoping that the pumps can take it. Um, if they can, we'll be back. If not, well, I don't like to say it. I think we'll great. be back one way or another, yeah, Tom. I think so. From all of us, for the moment, goodbye and God bless. And I just heard Caroline by the fortunes uh, fading away. 
And I heard either Tom or Stevie say, someone needs to turn off the transmitter. So I was upstairs closest to it. So I walked through the mess room, through the Dutch studio, and there was a staircase down to the transmitters. So went down there and the 10 kilowatt transmitter we were on was at the bottom of the stairs. And I just had that poignant moment. Uh, I put my hand on the switches to turn everything off and I thought, ooh, I wonder, is this the last time this transmitter is mm. going to be switched off? So I actually did count to 10 deliberately and then turned it off. If you ever hear the, a recording, there is that gap and then you hear whole channel's gone yeah and uh did um I, I guess you'd called the lifeboat earlier than that and they'd come out or had the coast guard sort of thinking this was really serious and we need to send some help out there the coast guard had offered uh, their help or assistance of a lifeboat and at the time we said no thinking we're yeah. you know we're fine but um later yeah. in the afternoon the coast guard did say that they were going to send the Sheerness lifeboat, I think it is, uh, out to us. And in recent years, um, I've got to know the captain of the lifeboat's son. Um, Charles Barry was the skipper of the lifeboat that came out to us. But I've got to know his son. And uh, I'm sure he told me that uh, the Sheerness lifeboat was out on an exercise uh, that particular day. They weren't desperately close to us, but they came out to us just to stand by to see, did we need help? And my God, we all glad now they did uh, come out. They stood off quite a while and they were shining powerful spotlights onto us on the deck because I, I was trying to prime one diesel pump towards the end and that helped to be able to see what I was doing because it's, you know, it's nighttime, it's rough. Yeah. We're quite close to the shipping lane uh, and that did help. But at around 11-ish, it was decided, you know, let's... Let's uh, just switch off the radio station and let's concentrate on getting ourselves onto the lifeboat. took a long while. About 20 minutes after we'd been on the lifeboat, this hatch opened and one of the crew from the lifeboat said, all the lights have gone out on your ship now. We just, you know, realised, well, if, if the lights have gone out, that means the water's got so high in the engine room, it's now engulfed the generator so there's no power. It's, you know, that water's coming in fast now. So there was that look of all of us looking at each other and going, mm, maybe we should go into land, assess things. And if uh, the ship's saveable the next day, I'm sure there'll be a crew out of engineers and, you know, tug and everything. But it was um, lunchtime news on ITV. When I got home, I saw, and I don't know if it was their lead story, but all you could see was the mast poking out of the North yeah. Sea. There was no no deck, no ship as such. Yeah. That was it. And it was, oh, my God, it, it, it really is the end of that ship. And it, and it must have been a really scary experience for all on board. And uh, I think I'm right in thinking um, the, the, the lifeboat captain said it was one of the most difficult rescues he'd ever done. I think he got some sort of award for it as well, didn't he? Yeah, I think it was a silver award. Um, one of the highest you can get. I mean, he's seen it all, you know, in his lifetime. He, I'm sure that was uh, quite a unique rescue. They couldn't have sent a helicopter out or, or any other means because the height of the mast in a bit of a storm and at night, you know, the, the rotor blades would have got caught in, um, you know, the aerial 
or something. So the only yeah, means yeah. To, was a lifeboat. And uh, fair play to all the crew, not just the skipper, but all the crew, because, you know, we were at a weird angle on a sandbank. They were trying to whiz past us really quick without touching. And we were throwing mm. people. When they said jump, we were pushing someone on board at the lifeboat and then it was zoomed off. And then when the time was right, they'd try and just scoot by us again mm. and try and do the same thing. So that was happening and happening. Yeah, very, very, very brave, um, brave people. Obviously, when you uh, you got back to land, I suppose you sort of kept in touch and it, it obviously became apparent, certainly for now, that that was the end of um, the story, although the story was to continue some years later. When they got us to land that night and we were taken to, I assume it was Sheerness Police Station, um, we were questioned informally but then we were told there were people from the home office on their way from london they would want to ask us some serious questions and they did they wanted to know phone numbers who was running it uh, where did we get out there from just everything about the operation because on that particular night there was no uh, doubt where we'd come from and there was no point you know telling fibs or anything no we were all led off to separate uh, rooms and questions and from what I know now what we gave as answers wouldn't have helped them at all um, so <laughs> they were no wiser but um, we were told you'll be hearing from us in uh, in time and a couple of months later I got a letter saying I had to go and see uh, some high-ranking police sergeant or at the local police station and I think we all got the same. We were read this letter that in the view of the DPP, uh, it wasn't felt that it was worth proceeding legally with this case. However, they said, if you're ever found involved in anything like this again, then it will be a different matter altogether. That was it. It more or less meant we're off. There's no charges and yeah. we could go. And like you say, um, we kept in contact with the office and it was always, we found a ship. Not quite sure if it's the right one yet. We're looking at others. Uh, and in that meantime, I'd, I'd really got the bug for radio. I knew I wasn't particularly good, but I loved it. And I thought, the longer I do it, maybe I'll get better. Um, but there were no radio stations you could go to. I had one or two interviews, um, and I think it was more curiosity from the radio stations going, oh, that's one of those yeah. fellas that came off Caroline. Let's get him in. And the, I don't think there was ever yeah. really a job there. So I um, I heard that in the Republic of Ireland there was a loophole regarding radio stations and a few people had uh, exposed that little loophole and were now running quite high-power professional radio stations. So I, I got a, a ferry, one-way ferry, over to Ireland into uh, Dunleary, which is just south of Dublin, and literally the same night, I walked into a radio station called Southside Radio and had a quick chat. And they said, oh, you're from Radio Caroline. You worked on there. Doors just opened. Come in, have a chat. And there were realistic jobs. And I, I, the next day, I think, I was on Southside Radio. Um, pretty much uh, stayed here for years. FM 103.7 in stereo. We are KISS FM. Kiss, kiss knock knock. Who's there? Nick, Nick, Nick Richards. 
WBEM 98 FM 1386 AM. Nick Richards here till 7 o'clock tonight. Nick Richards and the best music. Music's here on South Coast Radio. George Benson, that's taken from the George Benson Collection, a double LP. It's breezing. Four minutes to eight is the time now. And that is about it for me. Yeah, and, and you're, you're still over uh, over there now. It must have been a, a good move for you. It went on for ages, and then in 1988, uh, they eventually uh, got the law together, and it became law that at the end of December 1988, all the pirate radio stations in the Republic of Ireland had to close. So another of those periods, sitting down, waiting for something to happen, and it didn't for a long time. So I had a demo tape together, and I went back to the UK went to various interviews and uh, Viking Radio in Hull made me uh, a, a decent enough offer. And at weekends, uh, I'd sent a tape to Essex Radio in South End on Sea and they said, are you free at weekends? And I went, yeah. So I used to do Monday to Friday in Hull, get on the train, go down to London, out to Essex and do a Saturday afternoon show and then back up to Hull for Monday morning. Then, where did I go? Glasgow. And then from Glasgow, back to Ireland, or Northern Ireland, and stayed stationed in Belfast for a good few years, and then got a call out of the blue from Cork, where I am now. And they said, oh, we remember you from the Pirates in the 80s. Would you be interested in coming back to Cork? And had a chat, and it was a good deal. So came back to Cork and been here ever since. Excellent. And I was listening to the show earlier, and it oh, was sounding really good. <laughs> yeah. It was sounding really good. Uh, yeah. One quick question before you go, and it's hypothetical. Yeah. Um, if they had have got the ship together after your warning of the from the uh, the DDP, oh, yeah. would you? Uh, do you think you'd have gone? Well, I did go back anyway. I've been doing this is what eighty five or eighty six. I've been doing pirate stations in Cork, and when the Ross came back, uh, we could hear it at night. It sounded really, really strong. And I think it was Johnny Lewis went out there and he got in touch with me. He was saying, new ship, it's really good. And they're paying money this time. And I thought, ooh, shall I, shan't I? I thought, ah, sure, why not? Went over and one night I went out on a tender um, just to have a look at the ship and have a look around and stuff. And Johnny showed me all around and I met some of the people I'd known before. Ad Roberts was one. He was working for Monique at the time. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do this. So went off, had Christmas at home. And then early in the new year, I went out to the Ross and I did about a year on that those officers that had warned me, if you ever get involved in this again, weren't yeah. listening. That's the number four song, Every Time You Go Away, from Paul Young. We were talking about Paul Young just the other evening out here. Yeah, not exactly a heated discussion, but I think we all agreed. Paul Young, he's an okay sort of a guy. We're into him. Caroline on 558 on a very, very bumpy old North Sea this Sunday afternoon. Let's continue, Elaine, with your top five. Here's a song from Chicago at number three. This is You're the Inspiration. Because hmm? um, I did a year, and then if you've spoken to anyone who worked on the Ross and who worked on the Mi Amigo, you cannot compare the two whatsoever. Whether it's the history of the Mi Amigo that made it such a charming, warm, comfortable, safe-feeling ship. The Ross is probably a hundred times stronger. 
It's better fitted out. It's got more amenities, you know, hot and cold running water. Never happened on the Mi Amigo. There was something about the Mi Amigo. You just, it's very difficult to put into words. I did the year on the Ross and I thought, great, I've done it. And I was there during the Euro siege with laser and everything. I, I just thought I've reached the point where it's time for me to leave. It's, it was that Hotel California. You can check out, but you never leave. I don't think you ever totally leave Caroline. You know, they do those weekend specials. I did one of those and uh, it was it was interesting to do. But uh, it, I thought, mm, I don't know. I've got so many really good memories from Caroline, whether it's the Ross or the Mi Amigo. So I ha- I didn't do it anymore, but I'm glad I did it the once. No, I was just saying it was still there, obviously, when, you know, when, when it returned in 83. It was. I saw it one night. We were, we were talking on air on the Ross one night about the sinking, and uh, there was a bunch of guys listening up on the bridge, and they say that that night, it was a really weird thing, and I, I didn't see it because I was in the studio, but they said that the mist seemed to clear and you could see the mast of the Mi Amigo when myself and uh, Fergie, the chef, uh, were talking on air about the sinking. You know, if you follow the route of my life, it sounds deep and meaningful, but you can trace it all back to Caroline, really. Yeah. And it'll something you'll be able to tell your grandkids when you get them. <laughs> well, my my sons have little or no interest. They uh, they just you know why why did you have to go onto a ship and you know explain yeah. it and the eyes glaze over. And, you know, one thing I do have from uh, that night one is a cassette of a show that should have gone out live the night the ship sank because there was something on TV I wanted to watch, so I I pre recorded early hours of the previous day, recorded an hour, and I was going to put that out on cassette, watch the telly show and come down and then go live. Um, And I have that cassette, which never actually got broadcast. And the other thing is I still have the life jacket. Um, It's it's interesting, again, just finally, because I've taken loads of your time. No, you're fine. Um, Fine. You're saying about recording the show for the night. It's quite funny because... um, um, in Simon Barrett's book uh, about when um, they went onto the sandbank before and then they got raided by the DTI. I remember that starts with him saying that he recorded an hour of his show so he could finish watching Doctor Who. Ah, really? I remember it was, there used to be a show on ITV, Des O'Connor show, and it was like a variety show. He'd have comedians, singers and yeah. whatever. And that particular night, I'd seen a, a trailer on ITV saying Janice Ian will be on his show. And I thought, oh, yeah, she's quite good. So um, that was the sole purpose of recording an hour of, of the show so I could watch Des O'Connor with his guest, Janice Ian, singing on the show. And after that, I was quickly down the stairs into the studio and I go live. But it didn't quite pan out like that. And I never saw Janice Ian on the Des O'Connor show. No, of course you wouldn't do oh. it. No, <laughs> gosh. Yeah. Brilliant. Nick, thanks ever so much no, uh, for your time. I've really, really appreciated it. I think Nick and I were chatting for, I think it was an hour or certainly 50 minutes. And I have to say, I've not enjoyed an hour as much chatting to someone uh, in in some time. I really enjoyed chatting to Nick and he was so helpful. I mentioned that when I started to record earlier, actually 
Nick recorded all that at the studio back in Cork and uh, even edited it together and put the little clips in for me. So thanks ever so much uh, uh, for doing that, Nick. Uh, we have been sort of having a bit of a chat uh, since about the, the Irish um, pirate scene, which is a whole, whole new uh, fascination, really. And um, we've also said that hopefully Nick will come on again and we'll talk about the Irish pirate. Uh, seen in a, a future podcast and um, if you know anyone else who was involved and uh, would like to contribute to that then please uh, drop me a line uh, and uh, I will certainly be in touch and we'll get that together. If you want to contact me it's uh, jeffmartinmedia220 at gmail.com uh, that's the way to get in touch. So thanks again to Nick Richards, thank you for listening um, we're uh, still working on episode 34, I'm not sure whether we'll have an interview on that but if not we'll have some great radio to have a chat about but until then I'll see you next time, bye for now Thanks for listening to Radio Rollback Podcast. Don't forget to check out the back catalogue and use your podcast app to subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode.